Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the fancy sauce! Hell yeah! <laughs> what up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden, and I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And joining us once again, we've got Michael. What up, Michael? Oh, came down from the treehouse with my pirate hat and stack of hustlers ready to go. Michael is newly married, everybody, so a round of applause. Yeah, congratulations, I, man. You, uh, you have now you. achieved adulthood, which is now relevant for the film that we're going to be talking about today. So you've, yeah. uh, you've leveled up. You've leveled My perspective up, yeah? changed. I looked, I looked at this film as someone that had transcended <laughs> everything these young men were facing, and I related to it from the perspective of the Richard Jenkins character. <laughs> well, very, very happy to have Richard Jenkins' character joining us on the podcast this week. Sorry, that doesn't mean that Richard Jenkins is actually joining us. For people who are huge Richard Jenkins fans. He is Love not about to pop on. Yeah. Austin, go back. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've already talked about it. We're talking about Step Brothers, 2008, Adam McKay film, you know, produced by Apatow and crew. It stars Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, Richard Jenkins, Mary Steenburgen. Is it Steenburgen or Bergen? Steenburgen. Um, Bergen, I think. Yeah, Steenburgen. Lover, lover, lover. Adam Scott and Catherine Hahn, who's friggin' fantastic in everything she does. Um, so as always, we're going to go around and do first impressions and things like that. But I do want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, remember, you can follow us over on Twitter, SMTM underscore POD. We're releasing like little tidbits and extras and ideas and thoughts, hot takes, etc., etc. Pretty frequently on that. So check that out, SMTM underscore POD. And then uh, make sure to check out our other podcasts, Culture Binge, uh, check out Squanch, you know, go look at our back catalog, everything uh, contrary to popular belief, we're actually not feuding within the Wisecrack family. Well, how did that drama get started there, Michael? Was there that the, the Culture Binge people hate the Show Me the Meaning no, people? I, there was I, some I Twitter think beef. whoever runs the Show Me the Meaning Twitter account, and I'm not going to point fingers and name names, I think fired the first shot. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the that, that's a producer. So Matt, did you stir up some controversy? Well, Matt can't talk this, right now. This is, so I, I guess think, we're producer just have to throw Matt him and producer Maddie taking out their <laughs> internal beef via <laughs> the avatars of two podcasts. <laughs> Uh, amazing. So yeah, make sure you go check that goodness out and also check out our Patreon. We're releasing bonus content every now and then. We've done some really cool ones, a deep dive on Apocalypse Now, talked about like the philosophy of acting, talked that about amazing cool. feature debuts and what makes a good feature debut. So go check all that out, patreon.com slash wisecrack. That's the housekeeping. Let's get into the show. Let's talk about first impressions. Now apparently, Step Brothers is one of Michael's or Michael's favorite comedy so, Michael, give us your first impressions and tell us about your experience with Step Brothers and then what it was like watching it this most, re- time, most recent time yet. Yeah, I mean, I think I've mentioned this on podcasts before. I am a big Adam McKay head. Um, I think that, like, Adam McKay's progression from really dumb comedy to kind of thoughtful, satirical things to subversive comedy into more serious work has kind of mirrored, I don't know, shifts in my own interest and perspective. Um, but I'll say this. I, I loved Anchorman. I loved Talladega Nights. When Step Brothers first came out, I didn't rush out to see it. Um, mm-hmm. I had heard bad things. This was 2008. You know, around the time of my life, I, I was I was going to meet Austin, actually. And it was a time in my life where I wanted to be more serious. Um, I, I would say that when, when Step Brothers came out, I had lost my dinosaur a little bit and thought that I had to give up my dinosaur to be a serious philosophy boy. 
and yeah, philosophy grad school will do that to yeah, you a little I really bit. Did. Huh? I was more like trying to watch French films or yes, melancholia and shit like that. Yeah. Everyone's talking about Antichrist. I was like, 2009. It's all about a- von Trier and yeah. fucking it's like Malick. Adam McKay yeah, doesn't yeah, even know what Dogma 95 is. Um, <laughs> but you know, so I watched it probably 2010, 2011 for the first time on DVD after everyone said it was horrible and lost my mind. Um, just thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. I've probably watched it as much as I've watched any comedy, uh, in the past decade. I think it's the gift that keeps on giving. And I think that it's both brilliant for what it is, but scary for what it, I think, predicted about the, uh, unconscious or conscious mind of a certain type of American male that was, I think, coming to the forefront during the Bush era. Um, so I think that, that I think there's a reason the movie is just aged better and better. And doing a, you know a little Google today, you look at the early reviews, all bad. Almost no one liked this movie when it first came out. Uh, maybe someone else. Uh, I'll save uh, a fun review we can talk about later if someone wants to bring that up. But you look at now, like there was so many articles at the 10 year anniversary of people being like, "Oh, actually, this movie's really good," um, and people's perspective changed on it. All that to say is. Didn't see it when it first came out. Blew me away the first time I saw it on DVD. And I, I still really love this movie. And I had so much fun rewatching it today. Yeah. All right. Raymond, what about you, brother? Um, I co-signed everything Michael said. Um, saw this one in theaters when it came out. And I think I have been singing Derek's verse from Sweet Child of Mine for the past <laughs> 13 years now. Um, that's been stuck in my head. Uh, I love this movie. It's kind of my favorite type of comedy we we talked about this a little bit before we we started recording uh movies like this or dumb and dumber or mcgruber or a new leaf are just my favorites or like the jerk is is kind of the classic example of this where there's a main character that's just a little bit off and there's no diagnosis they're they're not terribly concerned with like what's animating that they're just like presented as they are and the movie doesn't necessarily judge them for that. And uh, we'll get into this a little bit later. But, um, Michael, you bring up how Adam McKay's uh, career has sort of evolved. But I think this this kind of exists really, really neatly within the themes that he's been exploring throughout his career. Um, certainly uh, something we could unpack later on. But this is... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love it. I, I would uh, probably say the same as Michael this is maybe my most rewatched comedy of of the past decade and uh when I first saw it I had a good time I laughed but it did actually it 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 certainly grew on me on rewatches and then the unrated cut came out and now that to me is like the version of the movie that I know (laughs) like I I know that Fancy Sauce was not in the theatrical cut, at least not as I recall. Little things like that that seem to have become a major part of everyone's like sort of shared memory of this movie. I think this movie, like Michael said, did kind of take take the time on DVD to become more and more of like cult status, if you will. Um, but uh, yeah, excited to uh, to talk about it and unpack the uh, the deeper meaning because I actually think there is a whole lot more on the bone than most folks would give this movie credit for. Well, cool. Well, then I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to play the foil Ooh. and I'm going to be like, meh. Wow. Meh. Like, like, 
Yeah, I mean, like, is it funny? Sure. Do I laugh when I watch it? Sure. I I don't know. Like, the first time I saw it, it was one of the things, it was the opposite for me with Michael. I had heard a lot of hype, like, you've got to see this. It's freaking hilarious. So the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, it's funny, but it didn't, like, blow me away. Like, I remember the first time I saw Superbad, I fucking died. I was like, this is fucking hilarious. And I think part of it was because I was I was studying at a Christian university at the time, so it also felt really, like, transgressive because I was a part of like the non uh, signing of the party line kind of crew at the university where I went you know we were kind of like we lived off campus and you know we drank and we didn't quite follow all the rules sort of thing and so then super bad for me was like the pinnacle so I was like really hoping that stepbrothers would kind of give me a similar kind of like freedom type of feeling and it didn't really do it for me so I was like okay whatever like it's funny but it didn't really like didn't blow me away and then on repeated viewings I've enjoyed it more but I still I'm kind of like yeah like okay like it's fine it's funny uh I much prefer Adam McKay after he separated with Will Ferrell like I'm really looking forward to Don't Look Up I hear, I hear it's really good. I love uh, his films that he's done since um, Succession. I know obviously Jesse Armstrong was the writer of it and the creator of it, but McKay had a you know kind of production and a little bit of oversight and talks about like his involvement in it, like that style. I, I just think that stuff is much more in my wheelhouse for what he's doing. And maybe that's not fair to kind of like critique this film based on what this artist has done subsequently, but. Like, it just doesn't fully do it for me. So even on this watch, and I'm going to play the role of super soft soy boy (laughs) liberal, and I'm going to say, you know what? This film's fucking problematic. Like, dropping F-bombs and R-bombs, and I don't mean the fuck word, but I'm like, and it just made me cringe, and I kind of felt that it maybe was even a little bit distasteful with and, and I know that there's an interview that we can talk about with Adam McKay where it was kind of like um, that he cut a certain scene that would have made uh, this concern of mine less potent. But it's the idea that, OK, so what are we just making fun of people who are developmentally delayed? So like the quote, non-neurotypical. And so for me, like I'm going to lean heavy for the purposes of this episode into those soy boy tendencies that I have. And I'm going to let the crowd yeah. get really can angry just, with me. Hold on one um, second, though, because I need cuck. to switch into a, a parka because there's snowflakes everywhere now. Uh, and, and, and while, and while cool. we're taking exactly. a break, I want to shout out Duda Bides real quick, who's straight out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Jump, jumped in the chat yeah. with a little donation and yelled, do not touch my drumsticks. And then also threw out <laughs> a great suggestion that Wisecrack should have a trivia night between the Show Me the Meaning and Culture Binge casts. So if there's a little something brewing between Ooh. you and Michael here, Austin, maybe we Let's could take it that. out on the trivia We'll make field. it a fundraiser or something. We're saying this right now to everyone. We're going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. It's going to be fun. Let's. It'll be great. Thanks for the idea, Dudabites. A billion percent. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, Dudabides. Yeah, we love you. Okay, so before we start peeling things apart, let's do just a brief little recap, and then we'll uh, let Michael and Raymond um, throw their shade at me for being a softie. Okay, so uh, Brennan and Dale, they're 40-year-old baby men, and when their parents, Robert and Nancy, <laughs> get on, married, this, they're forced this, to become this roommates. This is already feeling a little judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> Really coming for it. Go on. Hold on. Let let the copywriter read the copy. Um and uh, so uh, but of course they clash because they're forty year old men who are forced to live together and they're 
spoiled brats and they don't like each other, right? So Dale basically gives Brennan the house rules, most notably not to touch his drum set. But of course, Brennan not only rocks out on the drums, chipping one of Dale's drumsticks, but when Dale calls him out on it, he rubs his balls all over the drums, causing them to kick the shit out of each other. Their parents then have to punish them for this because they make a big spectacle in the front yard, and then they force them to find jobs which doesn't go so well, as they basically sabotage every single interview. Now, when Brennan's successful younger brother Derek comes to the house for dinner, he openly ridicules Dale and Brennan for their lack of ambition, leading Dale to punch Derek. And this really turns Derek's wife on, and she starts up a ridiculously hilarious sexual affair with Dale. Now, meanwhile, Robert and Nancy are planning for their retirement, where they're going to travel the world on their boat. However, Dale and Brennan crash the boat and cause further chaos, which end up leading Robert and Nancy to break up fully because of Dale and Brennan. It's all their fucking fault. Now, weeks later, Dale and Brennan, they decide that they're gonna, you know, get adult, and they get adult jobs, and they start behaving like functioning, quote-unquote, adult members of society, chasing money, 401ks, cars, Range Rovers, all of that stuff. But after a little pep talk from Robert, they realize that they can't give up on their inner dinosaur and that they need to follow their dreams, however childish they might seem. In the end, Robert and Nancy reconcile, Dale and Brennan become besties again, Dale breaks up with Alice to her dismay, and Dale and Brennan run a successful karaoke events business. And then, of course, in the credits, uh, Dale and Brennan get some revenge with the schoolyard bullies that picked on them. The children that picked on them. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to start peeling things apart. But before we do, I do want to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, which is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with like-minded individuals and creatives and where you can explore projects that you're passionate about. And this is what's so cool about Skillshare because you can unleash your creativity and pursue your passions right from the convenience of your own home. They offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics like iPhone photography, uh, drone film editing, classes on improving productivity, video for IG, artivism, etc., etc. Recently, I've started going through their catalog on design, uh, ethical design. Um, If you're interested in user experience and user interface, they've got some really cool things to help you figure out how to create um, different like persona profiles for if you're going to be developing you know, uh, apps or do anything with front-end UX experience stuff. So I've been doing a lot of that. It's really great. Um, they've got amazing stuff out there pretty much. If you're looking for a class that has to do with creativity, look for something and they'll have it. It's really great. So if you want to explore your creativity and connect with some really cool people, go to Skillshare.com slash SMTM. That's Skillshare.com slash SMTM. And you can get a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM free trial of the premium membership, or of course you can click the link down below. All right, so let's start peeling things apart here. Raymond, you uh, had something kind of teed up, yeah? Do you want to go ahead and take a swing at it? What did I have teed up? Wasn't there something that we were saying before I did the recap that you were like had some ideas that we were going to start peeling apart here, some of the richer themes? I, oh, I think what I mentioned was that Michael kind of uh, referenced the evolution of Adam McKay's career. And this may seem like a bit of a stretch, but I, I really don't think that's the case. But uh, if you'll follow me, uh, we're going to go on a bit of a ramble. Um, so Adam McKay's work kind of at this stage in his career has become a lot more explicitly political, um, really starting with the big short or maybe starting with the other guys. I know like the ending mm-hmm. credits of the other guys is all like essentially a PowerPoint of the housing collapse and, and how that was all orchestrated. 
But I think a lot of the stuff that he's been exploring in his later films really ex- in a really explicit way has always kind of been there from his first mm-hmm. movie, like the Anchorman movies, probably most obviously with, you know, these guys who are kind of finding themselves at the turning of a cultural tide and they're absolutely pissed about it. Um, and then, you know, Talladega Nights is all about how like sort of the the idea of like family or faith or patriotism papering over people's sort of latent bigotry or xenophobia. And in this movie, I think it fits within that paradigm. It's a little bit more obtuse, but one of the things that I love about this movie is that while Brennan and Dale are fuck-ups, the movie by the end of it is not really endorsing them and their worldview so much as endorsing them as humans and saying that, like, I think ultimately the message of this movie, and it's why, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Roger Ebert's review of it before getting on mic, and why I disagree with his implication that the movie is really mean-spirited is that this movie, I think, ultimately is saying that, like, some people are just square pegs, and they don't fit within the sort of, like, round holes that have been constructed in, like, a social way. And that's not their fault. And that it's incumbent on us to, like, accept people as they are. And that's not to say that, like, you know, all their faults should be forgiven and that people shouldn't be encouraged to grow and mature. But that some people are not, like, fit to exist within society as a socially constructed uh, sort of concept, if if you know what I'm saying. Um... And so it's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I I do genuinely think the ending of this movie is saying that, like, yes, we acknowledge that these guys are immature and entitled, but while they shouldn't feel entitled to, like, become doctors or run big companies or have, you know, a, a, a command over a bunch of people, what they should feel entitled to is a sense of support and a sense of structure and a sense of health and safety and security, not because they have earned that, but because they are, despite being fuck-ups, still human, and that all humans should feel entitled to those things. And I, I like I do genuinely find that aspect of the movie really like really beautiful and touching. But sorry, Michael. No, I think that's really interesting. And like I I too um just a really quick reference. There's this book called Improv Nation. I think the author's name is something Wasserman, maybe. But it's this book about the history of improvisational comedy and theater in America. And there's a big chunk about the mid-90s scene in Chicago when a young Adam McKay was a part of the I.O. Theater and Second City Theater in Chicago. And this is a guy who did stuff like for one of his comedy shows, posted flyers all around the city of Chicago that said, Adam McKay is going to kill himself tomorrow. This is not a joke. Um, had everyone gather around a building and like screamed a bunch of stuff about how life was meaningless and then threw a, a dummy modeled after him into the ground. Um, you know, someone who I think has always like wanted to push boundaries and, and sort of be subversive in his work since he was literally in his early 20s. So I think it is, I think there is that core there. And I think Raymond's absolutely right to say, You know, one might now be like, holy shit, Adam McKay got super political. But I think he's always had that sort of perspective. But I think like to to your latter point there, Raymond, that he's not necessarily judging these guys. I think in a sense in this film, in, in both Anchorman and Talladega Nights, we see men who are kind of pieces of shit. 
but they get power and influence and think they deserve things. The difference with like Step Brothers is he doesn't want to say these guys should be the president. And I think it's, of course, telling that this movie opens with a quote from then President George W. Bush. Um, but it's it's almost like saying that like people can be fuck ups or pieces of shit or like the round uh, 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 peg in the square hole. Uh, as long as they're not the people that lead society. But, of course, we see in sort of, uh, you know, Brendan's brother and and his corporate friends the type of, of male entitlement and confidence that Adam McKay is so They're like the masters of the of. universe sort of archetype that I think yeah. the movie is really kind of critiquing. Well, and I think he gets at that when there's the scene where uh, Richard or the Richard Jenkins character is talking to Mary Steenburgen's character, and he says that you know Dale said he wants to go into the family business, and she says, "But <laughs> you're, he's, a he's, you're a doctor," doctor. <laughs> and then he says, "He says it's all about who you know," yeah. and I think that's so apt though because I think you know once I could think about how many people, especially like dudes that run the world are in the family business because of who they know. And these are often people, you know, shouts to succession, right? What is succession about other than unqualified young men <laughs> who are in the family business because of who they know, having an insane influence on the world. And I think that line is a helpful key in getting at what McKay thinks about these characters and their place in the world. Yeah, it, I'm just looking at McKay's filmography and I wonder if like this the, the collaborations with Will Ferrell and the split with Will Ferrell could be drawn along these lines. And, and tell me what you guys think. Um, the collaborations with Will Ferrell were like fresh takes or new takes on um, on different cinematic types of stories. So, you know, the newsroom story, um, they're going to do a fresh take on it. You've got like the hate at first sight, you know, kind of like two families coming together, sort of Brady Bunch, but a horrible Brady Bunch. So this is like a fresh take on it. Then you've got like the Days of Thunder car racing sports film, right? And then the split is that now instead of McKay trying to do like intertextual references explicitly with cinema, he's now looking at um, like real world events, right? And so for me, there's like a freshness because they aren't just commentaries on the genre of cinema, even though, of course, there's always going to be intertextual references, but it's much more about like, okay, I'm going to lean into satire, which is going to explicitly address things in culture, society, um, kind of kind of very sort of boldly and in your face, which is what you get with Big Short, Vice, Don't Look Up, etc., what do you do? You think that that that's maybe a good way to kind of map the the kind of break there and what what he's doing? I can see. I think it's important to note that Adam McKay is, or excuse me, Will Ferrell is one of the co-producers on um, on Succession, and that the I just I just wanted to I, I just wanted to point that out because the way that Austin presented that, it seemed like you were kind of characterizing it as though they had had like a rift between the two of them. When in reality, I think they just. They, they're interested well, in making different kinds well, of Well, I hate now, to interrupt, but they, they did have a riff. The, the oh, news broke two days ago. Yeah, I didn't Adam know McKay that. said in an interview, I saw this in like IndieWire, that recently they literally had a riff because of a yeah. project Adam McKay is developing about the Los Angeles Lakers where Will Ferrell was going to play Dr. Jerry Buss. Then they put John C. Riley in that role instead. McKay said he went about it in kind of a shitty way, and that's why their production company, Gary Sanchez Productions, uh, broke up. I didn't know and that. And I guess Will Ferrell's not talked to Adam McKay in like six months or a year. So it was it was kind of like sad and, and kind of oddly apropos to be watching this movie a few days after that news broke. Well, I did not. Uh, I didn't realize that. But even so, I think with regards to the totally. movies that we've discussed so far, you know, that, that does bear mentioning. 
Um, but uh, that's I hope that hasn't caused a rift between him and yeah. John C. Riley. They're a great on-screen duo. Like going back to the, the that was just kind of like the Adam McKay thing. And there's more to say about McKay because I think he's a really interesting storyteller. But with regards to this film, like the things that I think are the most interesting are kind of like twofold. Like one that these men both have experienced trauma. Like one, the death of uh, a parent and one, a divorce at a young age. And so what you get then is you get like, um, what are the effects of familial breakdown, right? Which I think is something that's really interesting to explore and probably important to explore. And so if I'm going to be as sympathetic as possible and I'm going to kind of like take off my grumpy face, um, that's one of the really interesting themes. And then I think maybe even the most interesting theme is something that you guys have talked about is what does it really mean to be an adult? Right. And I love I love the bit at the end where they wear the suit of adulthood, but it's totally a bullshit caricature. Right. Like you can hear Will Ferrell be like, oh, this was a really productive conversation, blah, blah, blah. You know, like when when they're all at the Catalina wine mixer thing. And then, of course, the fact that it's Catalina wine mixers and that's like the most serious thing in the world. It's like, (laughs) come on, this is ridiculous. And, you know, it's also that fucking Derek can make 550 K or whatever it was that he made um, and, and make money. Right. So there's something about the kind of ludicrous nature of what we value as being mature, which makes that kind of like dinosaur monologue or little speech that Robert gives about how, look, I lost, I lost my love. I lost my passion. I lost my joy. I lost my ability to play. And we also have to remember, these are all artists that are telling this story. And what's one of the fundamental things they teach you in every acting class and every writing class, etc. It's about not losing that play, that sense of creativity and childlike wonder in the world. So there's also something beautiful about valuing that and so i think i think those kind of the issue of trauma and then the issue of like what does it mean to be an adult and why does this world value adulthood and there's probably there is like socio-political and political economic reasons why we value adulthood and why we devalue the child uh the child status of the human experience so i think that those are really interesting themes that are explored in this film that i that i do think are really valuable. yeah totally and it is interesting too that it's a movie about adult children going to live at home and that was happening 10 years ago, but it's happening much more now than it was then. And I think now it's not always just the weird fuck up sons who move home, but it's lots of people who have tried their best to be adults and have been spat out by the system and have to go live with parents. And I think the movie was kind of forward thinking and like getting at what do these people do that, that, that are lost that don't fit into, I think, like what you were saying, Austin, the trajectory of adulthood that one is the, the boxes one is supposed to check off. And we see what happens when eventually they do that and kind of lose their dinosaur in the process. Yeah, which is a bullshit narrative, right? Which is like, well, this is what adulthood is. You go to university and you meet a partner and then you have 2.3 children and you get the picket white picket fence and da-da-da-da-da, right? It's part of this fucking machine. And to challenge it in 2008, this is right before the GFC too, right? So they film in 2007. So now we have an entire generation of people that are even more heavily influenced. Wait, did, just, just for everyone listening, did you mean Great Financial Crisis I, by GFC? Because it took me a second. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Just sorry. assuming there's at least one other listener who is is as is, is slow as me, but just wanting Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, that's what he meant. 
<laughs> yeah, but right before the fucking world economy collapsed and the millennial generation, it is, is kind of crazy. Yeah, and and the the, the, the millennial that, generation that moment sort of chose this movie in a way. Yeah. Well, and and then you have COVID pandemic, and you have all these people. They're calling it the Great Resignation. Have you heard about this? Where people are leaving the job market. I just read this. It hasn't hit Australia yet, but um, it's hit Europe, Western Europe, and it's hit the United States. But I read this amazing article, and there was this you know tenured university professor who I can't remember exactly what her specialty was but it was something really relevant and you know she's producing scientific papers and she's like I realized that working from home um, made me want to have a better work-life balance and I also wanted to do things that actually um, impacted the world rather than just reading scientific research papers all day and squabbling with like interdepartmental and interdisciplinary issues um, ad nauseum and so she's like I'm leaving my full tenured professorship because she realized that before she was just chasing a title and she's like but those things aren't as important now so i think there's some really interesting themes that are kind of coming up with this tension about like what does it even mean to be a fucking adult in the world and and why do we like wear those masks and force that on us you know yeah absolutely i and i i think that uh on that note austin i i think another thing to add to that is that um uh, something that actually one of our listeners uh, shouted out in the chat just now, uh, Sky mentioned, given the COVID situation, I could see an entire generation of young folks losing ambition like the stepbrothers. Uh, and while I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as such, I do think a lot of folks, uh, given the pandemic or the climate crisis or any number of cascading events that are all like making their their lives and, and livelihoods more tenuous um, or untenable rather, I, I think there there is a sort of notion from folks that like, well, you know, this is if if things are going to be like this, do I really, you know, who knows how many like happy years I have left, not just uh, to enjoy my youth, but maybe to enjoy my life in general, and and you know, taking stock of things and wanting to really reevaluate what's important. Do I, do I want to spend my life like selling helicopters and how does that <laughs> really help things? And what does that actually contribute well, to society like, yeah, at the, the end of the day? The Dale character says at one point, like they don't get it. Like this lifestyle is a choice. And <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's, there's something to that. Like the fool who accidentally, even if not for the right reasons, sees through the veil of absurdity that, that modern society is holding there. And I think, to to broaden out and then get back to to the movie of course um but you know something like don't look up from what we know of the movie it's not out yet so maybe this isn't the case at all but it's supposedly a movie about two scientists who realize an asteroid is about to destroy the earth and no one really cares like these two people who are like guys there's a thing that's about to happen and politicians and media figures kind of just don't care and make a spectacle around it and even you have the same thing in the big short where you know the the uh, main characters there are like seeing what's happening and no one else around them is realizing this. Um, and they see the sort of world collapse around them as they're begging people to see things the way they do. And this is a much sillier uh, satirical version of that. But it's two people that are out of step with reality, maybe because the reality they live in is kind of bullshit in itself. Let me translate what Michael just said. Uh, Dale and Brennan are prophets. And they are <laughs> they are announcing the apocalypse, the revelation of the. Is that is that what I'm getting from this? Listen, it's it's Hanukkah season. I'm feeling a little Old Testament, <laughs> so uh, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some there's there's, there's something to that. There's yeah, something to that. There is something there. There is something there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Oh, all I was I was going to ask just to get like uh, on on track with the movie itself. Yeah. Like you come on here, you kick dirt in both of our faces, yeah. you make us lick white dog shit. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything about this movie that really works for you? Do you do you think there's a way in for you with this movie, or is it all just kind of top to bottom, kind of turns you off? It takes me to the end, and the end is when I start to be like, okay, I really like that tension about like them trying to play the adult. And then what happens to me is then it actually um, kind of like retroactively justifies everything else up to that point. But to me, I don't know if that's always a a sign of a successful movie that I have to wait. Even though it's a nice, you know, 90-minute film, I shouldn't have to wait 60 minutes before I start to be like, okay, cool, now I care. And I think that's what happened to me is I I just didn't care. I felt felt like it was a little, I don't know, it just was a little mean-spirited. I kind of read the Roger Ebert review that we can talk about now. I know, and I was kind of like, I got that too, like – like so, so do you think like the set pieces in the middle where you do have these like this series of comedic set pieces with their various misadventures is that where you kind of like tapped out a little bit no i, I for me it was kind of like just the setup it was the very setup from the beginning okay um i think i think that there that there are funny moments like almost like sketches like scenes that are funny like the the, yeah. the Catherine Hahn scene when she's talking about like wanting to get Dale up inside her vagina and like i think that that's funny right um <laughs> like some of it's not funny like when Derek goes up to the treehouse that as a sketch like i don't really think that's funny but it, okay it's it, you get it because then Dale punches him and then that's when Brennan and Dale become friends and then that's what creates the Traction, you know, with Derek. So, so it, like, it's important for the story, but like, like moments don't always work. And then um, I don't know. I, I I thought that some of the language was problematic, and I just don't really think that that's excusable. Um, yeah, so, I, I hear you yeah, on that. Kinda, I think there's mm. the one degree of nuance that I will lend it is that aren't, aren't uh, like the problematic instances of of like inappropriate nomenclature being used are both being used by. Derek, who is unequivocally painted as like well, the bad guy, Derek, the and then and then the kids, right? they don't say the F slur. Oh, I don't. I don't think the brothers say the F slur at all. I think they do say the R slur. They drop the R bomb. Yeah, which to me, like, listen, my dad was a special needs teacher. My aunt um, is is you know non neurotypical, and it's like so. I just grew up. I never to me that word even before it became like a cultural thing. I never. I just grew up. I was like that fucking sucks you know and i i've written articles on like the social model of disability so it's just one of those things that particularly for me uh is like a is, is like a red flag so for me i'm like ah, i just don't fair. take it and then i tuned in real heavily and i was talking with my partner about it we were like talking real much is this kind of like mocking developmental delay right and then i read that article that our producer matt sent us that adam mckay actually cut a scene um, and he actually regrets cutting that scene with where there's a psychologist that actually it makes it so that we don't lean in too heavily to them being sort of developmentally delayed. Yeah. Well, yeah. Know? And to be clear, in that scene, they were at the end of it. The doctors were like, no, you guys are just normal. They're just yeah, idiots. Exactly. Like, like, exactly. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. And I feel that is yeah, a, go ahead. something I had alluded to before when I was talking about some of my other favorite comedies, though. I think that is even if they don't explicitly state it. There's there's never like a a gross characterization of like uh, I think people talk about this with with the um, another John C Riley character uh, Doctor Steve Brule like the conversation with that <laughs> yeah. is maybe a little maybe a little bit more pressing because <laughs> there is a weird characterization that he's playing um, 
but it, it never seemed to me like, you know, my takeaway from, like I said, movies like this is always like, no, these are just really stupid people. They're just like total, like cartoonishly goofy in a way. You know what it kind of um, reminds me of? Do you remember Do you remember that TikTok trend where everyone was like, how do I know that my partner won't cheat on me? And it was always like some like like attractive woman who's dating like a nerdy guy. And it'd be like, this is how I know my partner won't cheat on me. And then it would cut to like him with his Star Wars collection or his DVD collection. And it was always like like mocking like these people that actually care about things that maybe are into like nerddom or fandom and it just felt like kind of shitty like Like, hurtful trend yeah i was like it was supposed to be funny right like that's how i know my partner won't cheat on me because they're just a fucking nerd and no one would want to have sex with them you know like so they couldn't even get it if they want cool thing to say say, like they won't cheat on me because they're just a gross piece of shit what are they saying about themselves there that's that's and it was like i don't know it just felt like like oh okay so because somebody has like a nerd tendency like therefore they're they're not cool enough they're not sexy enough they're not adult enough they're not mature enough so they're undesirable and i don't know i just it just felt shitty to me and i know i am leaning heavy into the snowflake uh here but fuck it i'm gonna play that role for this this tendency no i i understand all of that and it's certainly not to not to excuse any of the aspects that have dated poorly um i i think that it comes back to that notion of um uh, I remember having a discussion with a friend of mine about similar aspects of, uh, you know, representation and slurs being used in movies. And I think in this movie, it is certainly a bit more problematic because a lot of the time those sort of slurs are being used as uh, punchlines or they're being used to humorous effect. Um, but I remember talking to him and he said something that kind of stuck with me, which was that anytime you hear someone use a hurtful word like that, it it always should say more about that character than about the character that they are referring to with that word. Yeah. Like in, in the, the movie should be clear about how it's, how it's depicting that sort of language and, and, I, I and think not in endorsing the, it. And the final scene uh, at the Catalina wine mixer, I think there's an example of that when Derek realizes he loves his brother and they start to hug, but Derek first pulls back, he's going to hit him and starts calling him the F slur. And I think in that instance, it's just like, Oh, this guy is so fucked up that he can't fathom like hugging his yeah. own brother without using a homophobic slur because male intimacy to him yeah. is this horrifying thing. And, and I also think I like that the, the the sort of metric you just explained there, Raymond. But I also think with comedies and especially stuff from this era, I just tend to evaluate stuff on what work where that person's work has gone. And I do think like there are people from that early 2000s era that made comedies like that, that never veered away, never, you know what I mean? Never progressed, never grew. And I do think it's like with people in the Adam McKay extended universe, it's been cool to see those people like remain curious and kind of change mm. and grow. And, and I don't think the type of stuff we saw in Step Brothers you see in a lot of work from these people later on. So in my mind, I still find that to be a, a, a cool sign about that crew. Uh, it's total. Everything you're saying, Austin, I think is totally, totally valid and legit. But for me, I guess it's at least beneficial to know now that the work these people are doing is not, you know, indicative of of that sort of attitude, and that they've seemingly have yeah. like grown and yeah. been and, pretty thoughtful about their art. And to even contradict myself, like the most charitable and, and compassionate reading of this, let's be dialectical here to use like philosophical ideas, Do is it. that actually is that actually 
at the same time in using this quote-unquote problematic language, they're obviously intentionally highlighting that when people are doing that, that Derek is a shithead, that he sucks, and that everything that he Absolutely. represents, that certain type of adult, masculine, um, like homophobic dude, that that whole structure of, of being an adult is shitty and it should be critiqued and that even when these when these guys are dropping the elsler that 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 in itself is also something that is shitty and that they they are just maybe undereducated and that they need so there's obviously an, an intentional highlighting of that kind of contradiction um so that's the most charitable reading is to be like oh yeah okay so we can watch this and we can be like there's room for growth and improvement so i think that's in some ways it's also i mean but this is also why i think when things are problematic a lot of times they're problematic insofar as they reveal certain tensions that are rife for unpacking and exploring so um i'm curious on the note that uh we've talked about the roger ebert review we've alluded to this a few times we need to we need to post it on the smtm twitter But uh, we've talked about how he characterizes the film as mean-spirited. Um, maybe not ideologically, I don't think he digs too much into that, but he talks about the violence in it. And for me, one of the things that I love about this movie is that it treats violence the same way like a Tom and Jerry cartoon does, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, no, at no time do you genuinely feel that these guys are in mortal danger. Like, Brennan gets smushed between a falling bunk bed and <laughs> another bed, and he just comes out of it with a little scratch on his knee, <laughs> and he pushes out like a zombie. <laughs> like there is, there is this wonderful energy to it that does genuinely feel like um, kids playing in a sandbox. Like, oh, I'm gonna bury you alive. Well, I'm gonna pu- punch out like a zombie, and you can't, you know, you can't kill yeah. me. I'm invincible. I mean, like, at one point they say, "Do you want to go do karate in the garage?" Yeah. That's the thing you would say if you were ten or eleven, and you're at like a family friend's or a cousin's house, and you wait till like the the niceties happen, and you're just like. Hey, do you want to do you want to go in the garage and like kick pumpkins and put Mentos and Diet Coke? And it's just like, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. There and there, there is that that wonderful sense of like whether you want to call it in the parlance of the film, like maintaining their dinosaur or retaining their dinosaur, whatever it is. Like seeing, I know that it's it's very man child and that like the Apatows and McKays of the world at this point in film history sort of had the market cornered on you know men behaving like boys. But there is like, despite the problematic aspects of this that you've you've noted, Austin, there is a kind of like innocence and a purity to the way that these guys interact with the world. Um, like they 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 aren't cynical at all. They're you know they they there are so many aspects of this that are like obviously really stupid, but they're earnest, and that's kind of what makes them so funny. Is that like. from the beginning the game of one-upsmanship of like you have to call me dragon will you have to call me nighthawk and you you can see like the wheels turning in his head of like what's cooler than dragon like just little things like that there is there is a weird honesty to this that they they capture quite well it's almost akin to um tom hanks in big or something like that where like just that just being able to capture that sort of childlike innocence within it, one of my favorite moments in the movie that is i think kind of inspired in a weird way is the way that brennan is sitting in the back seat while his mom is driving him to meet the dobacks for the first time i'm not gonna call it's him just dad one of, 
I don't, even if there's a fire. <laughs> Not even if there's a fire. Like, the way that they qualify things exactly like that is, like, they think about things in the context of, like, PSAs or instructional videos that they watched as children in a classroom of, like, what to do in case of a fire or an emergency. Um, I, I just, I love those little notes throughout the film that are kind of just peppered in. Well, and I do think, you know, it's interesting to just really quickly to compare it to some of the other comedies of that era, let's say, like, in old school or, or like a wedding crashers, kind of like the Todd Phillips world. All the main dudes in those movies were like, we watch it now, and it's like, oh, they're low key just being like rape rips. Um, and I'm not trying to be silly. Like the, these movies are just like dark when you really look at what the the protagonists are doing, how they talk about people. And here, there's like an an innocence and an earnestness to their absurdity and their transgressive behavior, which I think stands the test of time better than some of those other films from that era. Is that is that one of the contemporaries that you were talking about earlier that you think that they haven't really evolved like Todd Phillips films that they haven't evolved as much as like the Adam McKay I, I don't universe? I think they have. I mean, I've, I've yeah. watched many of those films, you know, within recent years, and it's kind of a bit of a bummer. You know, there's there's scenes in those movies where you're like, ah, oh, when I was in high school, I laughed a lot at this, yeah. but this this feels bad is apatow um, and i would say they're what about the apatow show. films where where do they fit in this for you are they a part of the mckay extended universe i, I definitely think apatow i mean apatow didn't apatow produce this yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. he was, he I know was involved they, with it yeah they overlapped pretty regularly and i think that um you know your mileage may vary with some of apatow's recent output but i certainly think that he he has continued to evolve as an artist yeah. and i also applaud his work as a producer that he has, he's helped so many young artists realize their potential on screen, whether through like um, developing, helping them develop shows uh, on HBO or, uh, you know, helping bring their movies to fruition, stuff like that. He's been a really, uh, a really great ace in the hole for a lot of uh, up and coming filmmakers. And I think that his own work has reflected that sort of generosity that he, he's surrounding himself with new talent, with new ideas. And he's he, he's always kind of expanding his notion of uh, of what constitutes art, or at least with it, with regards to the stories that he wants to tell. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about the Roger Ebert review, um, Michael. I know you were saying that you're usually a fan of Ebert, but uh, so yeah. he focuses on like the mean spiritedness of this. I'll be honest. When I read the article, I kind of found it a little bit nonsensical. I I really didn't get what his issue yeah. was. And he kind of makes this remark. I feel like he saw another movie. Yeah, it, and it was kind of like, <laughs> like he's like, "Listen, I like funny things. Remember that time that I wrote that X-rated film and blah 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 blah." And I was like, maybe he was just jaded. Like I, I, it was a very strange review to me. And then he, he's very cryptic about like he's like, "Oh, there's a similar joke that is made in a Jack Black movie. It was a Tropic Thunder that dra- Jack Black makes, but it works in that film and it doesn't work here. What's the joke?" Yeah, what what film has aged better? I think it's um. In Tropic Thunder, Jack Black is tied to a tree, and he says, "Like if you if you untie me, I will literally suck your dick." Uh, and then he goes into graphic detail about the process of doing that. But I didn't know how that. I was trying to think of what the joke in Step Brothers was that he insisted was like a one a one to one for that joke. Yeah, Rob Riggle says um, he would he would eat his dick like Kobayashi. Kobayashi. That oh, was yeah. the only one that I yeah. could think of. Um, but but I don't know. It's like interesting that you know he wrote that in two thousand eight, and like more um, people are going to watch Step Brothers long after they watch Tropic Thunder, which has Robert Downey Jr. in blackface. But um, I, I, I yeah, I, I think that. It is interesting because there's not a lot of there's a lot of examples in history of really good film critics that are really bad at writing about comedy. 
Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of examples of really great comedy films that in their time just did not get didn't get that level of critical praise and it's 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 weird i don't know why that's the case maybe it's because a lot of comedy films don't involve story structure and emotional stakes maybe in the same way that that some other films do a lot do but it's but it's just interesting to read a film critic who's so good on so many films and who just thinks this movie is total trash well who knows i mean a lot of it comes down to taste like if you uh, there's that that great documentary about uh, Roger Ebert, uh, Life Itself, uh, named after his memoir. Um, and there's a clip in that where he he says like, uh, so it's a, a thumbs up for Benji and a thumbs down for the Kubrick film, referring to Full <laughs> yeah. Metal Jacket. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where like, yeah, you know, a lot of it comes down to taste. I think I, there was another episode where he was saying like, I'm wagging my tail for Garfield or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, people people like what they like. And I think one of the things that's so great about the review um, whether or not we agree with him, Michael, is that like we talked about we talked about this in yeah in the Telegram exchange after you shared that with us that like he and Gene Siskel were so great at the, it, it's it's that thing that great film criticism should do, which is that like whether they like it or not, they make you interested in seeing it and they they make you interested in being part of the conversation. And I think that's why he was one of the greats, not because he has perfect taste. This this is what's so important, I think, for us to like really just keep harping on that film criticism is not the same as like cancellation. So we live in, in, in a world now where it's like, oh, something makes you feel icky. It's bad. Don't watch it. It's gone. No, no, no. Like, I have so much fun talking with you guys about films that I don't like. I have so much fun talking. I went and saw a film um, at the Sydney Film Fest, and it was the new Jane Campion film, Power of the Dog. I didn't oh, yeah, yeah. love the film, but the conversation afterwards was so much fun. So this is something that I think is so important about art, right, is that that it isn't icky bad, never talk about it, fuck you, you're an idiot for liking it, or like, oh my god, it's the greatest thing in the world, I'm going to identify with it, and now it's going to become part of my identity. It's got to exist in some other dimension of, of like what yeah, it is but that, that we that's do. the metric that you're pointing out, which is important. I think art, whether we individually like it or not, if it can lead to interesting conversation and debate, then at least it's art that's trying to do something, right? Yeah. It's, it's the bad art is like, you know, we go see the movie together and walk out and it's like, Oh, yeah, that just sucked. And there's nothing to say because it <laughs> yeah. was just like bad. You know what I mean? Like, I think there does exist, you know, uh, literature and plays and films and, and visual art that do that. But I think you, you're totally right, Austin. And that's what people that are interesting when they talk about films are interesting because they're able to identify the ideas that are happening there and have something to say about them. So it's, it's that, yeah. that kind of like plague, plague of mediocrity that you see a lot of the time when when a movie doesn't take any any real big risks. I would much rather see a movie. Uh, my, my friend Rashawn, who's been on Show Me the Meaning a few mm -hmm. times, he always talks about how like he would much rather see someone strike out while while aiming for the fences yep. than see someone just kind of like I don't know, just like bunt one and maybe, you know, like sac sacrifice it for someone to advance the second. I think the analogy falls apart. <laughs> but it, it, it is just one of those things where like, yeah, you, you do kind of lose something with all the, the sort of like focus grouping and, uh, you know, studioifying of art. Like there, there has to be someone in the chat. Um, Liam Nairn uh, said, there is actually an idea I've heard a few times that only someone with a childlike way of handling the world can actually create anything new. And our society seems to built, uh, seems built to snuff that out. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely a theme that's at play with this movie, but you can also take a look at the film industry as a whole and, and you're always going to see 
those sort of uh, the those those two poles at at, at at war with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Go um, awesome. I was just gonna say, there's no. A lot of philosophers talk about like the revolutionary spirit as insisting within youth or the eyes of the youth or the impetus of the youth. And there's a reason for that. It's because you don't have as much time to have been beaten down by the pressures of the world to pay a mortgage and to survive. And you haven't seen as much. And so you still do have a little bit of the um, idealism. And if you can maintain that in your artistic creativity, in your personal life, in your relations, etc., there is a lot of value in it. So, yeah. Well, and, and I'm allowed to use this word because Austin said it earlier, but I think with, with art as in philosophy, th- there's this like meta dialectical process by which the the best uh, philosophers, in my humble opinion, are people that if you read their entire oeuvre, um, might change their mind or progress what they think because their work is always in dialectical relation with the world around them and the progression of thought around them. And there's always people philosophers, other academics who one might say they had one idea when they were 32 years old and they, they wrote that over and over until they were 80. And I think filmmakers <laughs> can be like that as well. Yes. And, and I think it's interesting. And I do think McKay has done a good job of this. He's someone that has had a, a dialectical relation to, to the world around him artistically, politically, who he works with, what he thinks matters. And, and I think that's important. And I do think that the best comedy creators do that and the worst comedy creators um think that what they thought was funny in 1998 is the only thing that's funny and them and their friends as they get old and lose their hair i can say that um you know they still just like hover around that one circle because they're in a non-dialectical relationship with the culture society world around them can we can we take a minute and can you just talk with us? I mean, you're the the comedy maestro here. Can we talk about like what are who are some of the best comedic creators at the moment? And because is Step Brothers your favorite comedy film or is it like just in the top echelon? And can you talk about like what else for, is for, up for, there for you? For me, it's yeah. top echelon because I don't we don't really make good comedy movies anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there's movies that come out that are funny, but we had an era where someone like an Adam McKay. Um, could make a really funny movie. There was an era where Superbad, you know, got made. And things like that just don't, you know, mid, mid-level mid comedies don't get made. I think that, you know, like, um, you know, we say about dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, life finds a way um, and, and comedy finds a way. And I think uh, comedies become much more of a television medium than it is a cinematic mm. medium these days, in my humble opinion. There are very funny movies that come out still. Um, but... Yeah. So I don't know. And Mm -hmm. I think that like a lot of I think a lot of the best stuff, things I like, you know, we've talked about this before. I've talked about this maybe on this podcast. I've talked about this with Raymond. But people like Connor O'Malley, I find to be um, rip roariously funny in the way they make comedy that's on the Internet, that's about the Internet, that's exploring (laughs) in a way that's very similar to Step Brothers, but in a dark way. Connor O'Malley, someone who wants to ask, like, what is in the psyche of some of the weirdest Americans, whether these are people who are are kind of infected by the psyche of, like, hyper-capitalism or those that have a sort of, like, fascist-leaning nationalism in them or or sort of, like, a masculinity that starts to break their brains. And (laughs) I think he's someone who, like might not ever get a TV show or movie made, but is, is use the, the internet to, to do that in really cool ways. Um, yeah. I think Tim, Tim Robinson is another example, uh, who's kind of in the same orbit and certainly on the other side of things, I think, uh, Joe Para has oh been doing God. some incredible work <laughs> who is kind of like 
the complete opposite side of of the spectrum from a Connor O'Malley or Tim Robinson. His his comedy is much more quiet, but it's it he he has this this great energy about him and his approach to his work is almost kind of like being sort of a contemporary Mr. Rogers in mm. a cynical world and just kind of like almost seeing how that sort of that personality type can exist like unharmed and undaunted. Yeah. It's a n- within... non-ironic earnestness, you know, which we don't see yeah, a lot of. Absolutely. Um, and I will just say, we're throwing out. Oh no, go ahead. Finish talking about Joe Farrell. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> I was, I was just going to pivot to say, um, a, a, an actor that uh, I, I think like Will Farrell, Adam McKay, and them walked so that uh, he, he and his uh, co-creator could run. I would say Jody Hill and Danny McBride are mm-hmm. a great, uh, a great comedic duo who very clearly, I mean, they kind of owe their careers to Adam McKay and Will Ferrell who put them on after seeing Foot Fist Way, but you can definitely see the seeds of a Kenny Powers or um, uh, like his Righteous Gemstones character in like Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights. I think if that movie got made today, it would 100% be a Danny McBride vehicle. Yeah, and the last person I'll throw out as we're doing a bunch of names for anyone who's listening, uh, Patty Harrison. Uh, Patty Harrison is, is one of the funniest comedians working. She uh, does stand up she's in, you know, I think you should leave and some of the best sketches Aaron wrote for it. Um, she got kicked off of Twitter for being very funny. Just, <laughs> just <laughs> extremely funny. yeah, for just, it was the funniest reason to kicked off Twitter. But yeah, and I think these are all people that like are relating to the current cultural moment and responding to it in really interesting and thoughtful ways. And I think that McKay, we, we could trace a lot of that back to that McKay moment because when you read the you know oral history of uh, Step Brothers that The Ringer put out a few years ago, a, a thing a few people note and some of the actors that worked on it is that you know by working with him, they noted that Adam McKay is, is very uh, subversive and intellectual and someone who has ideas and, and wants to make comedy that reflects the culture. And I think... Like you said, I think that crew walked so a lot of really interesting people could run right now. Hmm. So let's as, as it is a shame that more movies like this don't get made. But go on, Austin. Well, yeah, I was going to say as we're kind of winding things down, what do you think this means for the future of comedy? Kind of like final thoughts here. Like Michael, you said that in a few years' time, we're still going to be talking about Step Brothers. We're not going to be talking about Tropic Thunder. Like, what is it that makes this film have any lasting power? Um, kind of like what do we think wrapping this up what is the future for comedy this kind of comedy has it moved to tv online exclusively is there room for comedies to be made on streaming services maybe direct to streaming services like is this also a a shift in the landscape that kind of the distribution landscape and our consumption of media landscape that kind of has affected where and how these types of vehicles are are being produced what do we think I mean, I would just quickly say, I, I do think we're, I don't know if we're going to get back to that era where you have comedic auteurs and that sort of, you know, uh, like we talked about the, like the early 2000s, the, the Apatow, Todd Phillips, Adam McKay era, of course, just all, all white bros. But I don't know if we're going to get back to that, but I think it's going to be a lot more, you know, most of the people that Raymond and I just mentioned aren't a part of massive projects, but do very specific things. And I think comedy has gotten a lot more specific and there's a lot of like sub genres mm and worlds uh, in comedy. And I think that's going to keep happening. But I think it's it, it looks a little bit more like indie music than pop music. And I think there was an era in the mm. 2000s where comedy was pop music. And I think it's returned to an era where it has more of that uh, indie, almost artsy vibe to it. 
and but I, I, I would feel uh, unprepared to predict what the next, you know, school of comedy or group of comedians would be who go pop. Don't but before I turn do. it over to Raymond real quick, it's interesting. I love that like indie versus pop thing. When I was younger, like I kind of remember when a big comedy film would come out, like that it was almost like a cultural event, right? American Pie, Nutty Professor. I mean, I was young for it, but Beverly Hills Cop 3, you know, like I used to watch it. Like to me, it was like it felt really important when these films came out, you know, and then like going back and watching like Coming to America. Like there was a time in the 80s, 90s, 2000s where it felt like a cultural event when one of these films came out and I came out and now the only cultural events are the big you know like three hour epics and so it's kind of just interesting that that things have changed but I will say this it was really refreshing when I pushed play and I saw that it was only 90 minutes long and I'm like wow a 90 minute movie I haven't seen an hour and a half movie in fucking ages so that was really lovely love it love a 90 minute movie Raymond, turn it over to you for the final thoughts, man. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we kind of touched on this in our Eternals episode. This just isn't really the kind of movie that studios are all that interested in making anymore because, it, you know, the they go high risk, high reward. They want a, a billion dollar grand slam every time out of the gate. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with Michael. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in, in the streaming world. A lot of that stuff has moved to TV. And, you know, it, it actually... It doesn't cost a whole lot of money to be funny. So, you you know, you've seen some really, really funny independent films come out in the past few years, uh, or at least, you know, movies that may have a little bit bigger budget sometimes, but are still in sort of the independent mode. Uh, movies like Booksmart or um, uh, uh, Jim Cummings, uh, who's a filmmaker who's made a, a, a handful of really, really funny films. He He's kind of a, a figure in the Danny McBride mold who's always messing with ideas of like, fractured masculinity um he did a movie called thunder road uh wolf of snow hollow that's really really funny um so yeah i mean i i'm comedy is always going to be around uh it's <laughs> it may be distributed in weird ways but you know austin you've talked a lot about stuff like uh tiktok on here and, and things like that it's it is so crazy to me how like i'm not on tiktok but every once in a while a video will kind of get bumped into my twitter feed and it's amazing the ingenuity and the creativity on display from like kids, like 10 or 12 year olds who just <laughs> yeah. pick up their phone and have just a natural understanding of like comedic rhythm and, and how a joke should be structured and stuff like that. Like, you know, there's, there's always going to be good stuff out there. Might just be a little bit more difficult to find. Hmm. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap that up. We love you out there. Normally, we would go back in the mailbag at the end of an episode, but last week, we did our full mailbag episode where we went through like 20 of your questions and voicemails in email, voicemail form, and it was great. So we just don't have too many uh, things to dig through at the moment to, to answer. So make sure you reach out to us. Shoot us your emails. You can do that at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. 
or you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Make sure to keep your voicemails as short and concise as possible so we can play them on air and answer them. Um, that's it. Everybody, where can we find you on the internet? Michael. Uh, Michael O'Burns on Twitter. Michael O'Burns with some underscores around the O's on Instagram. I'm on Wisecrack all the time. And if you're looking at Wisecrack stuff, uh, check out uh, the, the new shows we're making and, and let us know what you think. Let us know what's working, what you'd like to see. Shoot us an email. Hit me up on, on Twitter or whatever. But, uh, yeah, do that. Thanks. Yeah. I like the hot take game that you've started. The one that you did with our, our horses, the worst animal, where Helen had to <laughs> defend if horses were the worst animal and you had your panel of people like arguing back. I like uh, I like that new show. That's great. Well, yeah, we'll do a doc one day about the chaotic making of that, but but not yet. Oral, oral history. Oral history of of 10 years. Our horses, the yeah. worst animal. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Raymond, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Uh, feel free to stop by and say hello. You know, I had somebody reach out to me on Insta, and I get this a lot, people asking me for, like, recommendations on movies, films, TV shows, books, things like that, and I've actually just been pointing people for movie recommendations to Raymond's Letterboxd. So, <laughs> have you really? Yeah. That's, so a just good, that's go good advice. I love follow, it. If you want reviews or recommendations or what, go to Raymond's Letterboxd and just... Get on Letterboxd and find other people that you like their take on things, and and that's how you can find good good uh, recommendations. So or just gonna... buzz me on Twitter if you need recommendations. I think a few listeners bit off more than they could chew because anytime someone asks me for recommendations, I'm like, here's 15 tweets. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And I'm Austin Hayden. You can find me on Twitter, Insta, all that good stuff. We're gonna get out of here. Raymond, will you send us out, brother? Goodbye from the fucking Catalina wine mixer.